I'm Sharon Batters, and it is such a delight for me to welcome you to this special edition of our Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. This past summer, we held a virtual event that we called Beyond the Book, Ask the Author. And one of our guests is Wendy Alsop. We invited Daily Treasure subscribers to ask our authors questions. And Wendy's topic is not an easy one. We are talking about her book that she wrote called I Forgive You. In this conversation, we ask Wendy those questions that were submitted by our viewers, our listeners, our subscribers, and I know that you are going to be encouraged by our conversation. Wendy's approach to forgiveness is not a finger in your face. Uh, It is not legalistic. It is not sticky sweet. It is pure scripture. And she leads us gently into that place where we can experience the freedom that forgiveness brings. So my co-host is Barbara Latalian. Barbie and I have been friends for, it seems like forever. I tell her she is the other half of my brain because we work together, we partner in ministry with Mark Inc. Ministries and she helps keep me on track. So I know you're going to enjoy getting to know her as well. Well, without any further comments, let's join the conversation with Wendy Alsip, author of the book, I Forgive You. Again, thank you so much for being here. It is such a privilege. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Wendy has been a guest on the Help and Hope podcast twice. So you can go to markinc.org to listen to those podcasts. They're just really, really good. So before we jump into talking about forgiveness, tell us a little bit about your life. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for having me, Sharon. And your encouragement and support of my books has meant a ton to me. And my story is uh, I was a deacon of women's theology and training at Mars Hill Church back in the day. My husband and I actually moved out to Seattle, Washington to be a part of that church plant and um, were very involved. And then, you know, a lot of people know the story of how that kind of went down a negative trajectory. In 2008, uh, there was a big firing of elders, and we ended up moving over to a PCA church at that point. And it was a very rough, bleak season. I really had believed that the Lord was doing a great deal at Mars Hill, and He was. And so it was very much wrestling with my understanding of God's kingdom, of what is it, what does it look like to to give your hand to what seems to be a good work. And then how do you interpret it when it goes totally different? And with, you know, it's the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. How do you interpret it when actually you were trying to spiritually bless and instead you, you deeply harmed. So I was wrestling with that for a while. And then in 2012, my husband had the onset of what would come out, we'd finally learn would be schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And it ended up resulting in a divorce I did not want. I ended up moving back to South Carolina and the safety net of my, my parents, my sisters live here, remodeled my grandparents' farmhouse and got moved in here. And about a year After I started getting back on my feet as a single mom, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. As hard as the schizophrenia and the divorce was, I I really feel like it was the breast cancer on top of that, that finally I felt like kind of pushed me over the edge of really 
struggling with God, doubting God, having to really, you know, like the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, basically he says, I am thinking things about God that if I verbalized would look bad for his name. They would not glorify the name of God. And so I felt a lot of things inside that I never really articulated on the outside, but it was a struggle deep down in my psyche. And so from there, the Lord has really um, shown me a lot about his character and, I, and he's increased my faith. Nobody wants to go through a trial, but he has taken the trials in my life and he has increased my faith with them. And both um, my book, Companions in Suffering and I Forgive You, were born out of some of those struggles. Yeah. And I highly recommend both of them, Companions in Suffering. We have, we ha- you and I have a conversation about that on the Help and Hope podcast and on forgiveness yeah. uh, as well. So I see the fruit that God is growing, even though it's been painful. We want to talk tonight about forgiveness. And so we thought it would be good for us to, if you could define forgiveness for us before we jump into asking you very specific questions. I think it's helpful to distinguish first what forgiveness is not. And forgiveness is not sweeping sin under the carpet. And forgiveness is not necessarily the same thing as reconciliation. Like you can forgive someone and, and not be utterly reconciled to them. Forgiveness is also something that doesn't require the repentance of someone else. Forgiveness, the Lord modeled it on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're not repenting, right? They do not even understand the wealth of their sin. And it's so neat for God, for Jesus to give us that example that forgiveness is very much about releasing my right to vengeance. It's not about allowing someone to continue in sin, but it is about releasing my right to vengeance against that person. Those two things are different. You know, you can stop someone from continuing to harm without retribution. I think having some of those disclaimers in it and those, uh, they're kind of paradigms, you know, they're, they're walls to help us know what forgiveness is and is not. But a lot of times we'll use the word forgiveness and someone who's been deeply harmed thinks you mean for them to kind of sweep it under the carpet, pretend like it didn't happen and go on like nothing ever happened. That's really not how forgiveness is used in scripture. That's reconciliation, but reconciliation really requires repentance on the part of the other person because God is, God is serious about justice. God is serious about not enduring sinfulness in such a way that we are promoting it or pretending like it doesn't matter. So I I use all of those things to kind of distinguish what forgiveness is and is not. Why is it so painful? Why is the loss of community so painful, whether it is with an individual, like, like a marriage, a friendship, a church? Why does it hurt so much? Well, really, because it's, that's not how it's supposed to be. So I would think we should be more concerned if it didn't hurt us, right? If it didn't hurt you, that means you're so scarred. You, you maybe have been burned and scarred and you can't feel the pain anymore. That's a sign of a problem, not the sign of God's created image in you. And so I think when we hurt because of the loss of community, we want to like make ourselves harder so we don't hurt so much. But really hurting means you're still human. Hurting means you're still 
clinging to the image of God and to what he created you to be. And you're hoping for more. You're disappointed because you know God has called you to something better. And so I've worked really hard not to allow myself to become cynical and disillusioned and hardened to what I think God created us for. And instead to be willing to sit in the pain of loss, you know, something you've, you have a loss, it hurts, and it's better to walk through it, to face it head on, knowing that the pain is because of the goodness of God that he's called you to something better. And also to know with hope, there will be no tears in heaven. So my sister and I talk about this a lot when we have a pain on earth. You know what? It, it, it whets our appetite for heaven. But I, I really believe the answer is not to harden ourselves to the pain. One of the things that struck me in your book is you talk about this and you say we were created for community, that community yeah. is God's gift to us. And based on what I know of you and what I've read in your work and heard you say is theology is critical to our life of how we live life. And so one thing that has helped me not to become cynical, though it's a battle sometimes as a pastor's wife, is God's good gift is community. No matter how messed up it got, no matter how much the hurt makes me want to isolate and run away and hide and forget about it, I know that his good gift is community. And so that in itself would be an incentive for us. We might have to take time, but for us to continue to pursue community. Absolutely. And, and you know, you grow and you mature and maybe you have more wisdom for the future of knowing where to look and where not to look. And then also, I think there's a part of it, once you've been burned by community, part of not giving in to cynicism is a mature understanding of the heart of man. This is this little vignette about Jesus's interactions that said he entrusted himself to no one because he knew what was in the hearts of men. And it was just that he was wise. So you need to be aware as you enter community, what people can give you and what they can't. And I feel like it's taken some pain for me to learn it, but now I can enter community with a new group of people and not expect them to meet needs in my heart they were never created to meet. Mm -hmm. And then instead receive from them what they can give me in the image of God, but not expect from them or be offended by them or hurt by them when they cannot give me certain things. So then let me ask you, because I think this question that was submitted kind of goes on the, the end of that, which is letting go of those things. So the question says, how do I get past the astonishment, hurt, and dislike for a person that I've cared about, had a relationship with, and enjoyed when they have repeatedly turned against me? And I do pray for this person, and I've spoken to them about the behavior over the many years of our relationship, but to them, it's funny and a chance to make fun of me in the situation. I do see the emotional bankruptcy of this person due to their own history, but I'm still having trouble completely letting go and allowing God to take over. I have asked God to forgive since I cannot. I have ended the relationship, but this person is still in my life with other loved ones. So what advice would you give them for how to get past that? Well, I first want to say I can just really hear that pain and how it hurts over and over again to have someone attack you over and over again and have someone disrespect you. Mm -hmm. They don't respect the image of God in you. And I, I saw that question in the list. And so I pulled up 
a verse in Second Timothy 2 that has been fundamental to me in dealing with people that don't see their sin, they're not repentant. How, how am I supposed to think of them? And so I'm going to read it. Second Timothy 2, and it starts in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will lead them, God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And it has been really powerful for me to see my unrepentant opponent as someone who is captive to Satan. And that gives me the place to really pray for them. I don't have to take it personally. This person's got a bigger problem. They're under the control of Satan. They're captive. And it's not like they're some kind of happy minion. It says they're captive. They're oppressed by Satan. And this passage really calls me to compassion, to see someone trapped in their sin as trapped. And then my prayer isn't just that they'll start being, treat me better. My prayer is that they'll find freedom from Satan, that the Lord would grant them repentance, that he would grant them change. And if you can take that shift of attitude where it's not them against you, it's Satan against you, right? It's Satan that's at work here. And this person's a pawn in their game. That's really helped me to have compassion on someone who is poking me in the eye, who is stabbing me in the back, not to see them as the enemy, but see them as a pawn of the enemy and then feel compassion on them. Practically speaking, though, if you have to interact with this person, you know, you've tried to to work through these issues, but you're not getting anywhere, but you still have to interact with them. How do you move on with forgiveness? So you're not being a fake, you know, you're going to be nice, but, or are you? Well, I think, remember again, forgiveness is not um, sweeping the sun under the carpet, but it means that you're not going to take retribution out of them. Vengeance is God's, not yours, right? So it's not up to you to ruin their reputation. It's not up to you, though, either to protect their reputation from the harm they naturally bring on themselves. You know, it's okay to say, you sinned against me. There's nothing wrong with saying that because the great hope for them is repentance, right? And so we don't help them toward repentance by pretending like they didn't actually sin against you or sin in some way. So if I'm in a situation like that, I try to have boiled down some kind of sentence if the need arises to say something that I've prepared ahead that's succinct, that will not lead me to an emotional response. Because I often find if I, if I get so worked up, I've been pushed and pushed and pushed, and then suddenly I erupt, nobody can hear it from you. And so, so much better if you can be prepared to say, you know, I'm uncomfortable in this conversation because you really hurt me when you did so-and-so, and and I don't feel like we have settled that. Mm -hmm. And then back away and move away. You didn't sin against them in your conversation, but you were honest. You, you really sinned against me. And if you can, can prepare something ahead of time, 
so that if you're caught in a moment where you need to interact, you have a way to say it without going to an emotional response that folks can't hear. I think that's a helpful response. In your book, you talk about feeling like you were tossed off of a boat and your friends are still on the boat and the ones who tossed you appeared to thrive. Probably they interpreted this, that God was on their side and maybe others did too. And that what you considered sin wasn't really sin, making it very confusing to former friends and people that were part of your community. Did you ever question that maybe you were wrong in your interpretation of events or were you disappointed with God because the church did not implode immediately? I ask, this person says, I ask because I feel like I'm in a similar situation and the grief overwhelms me so much. I don't know how to rest in the Lord. I found resting in the Lord very hard. I wrestled a lot more than I rested for a pretty good period of time. And I don't think wrestling with the Lord is necessarily a bad thing. I think the problem comes if you stop wrestling with Him. The problem comes when you give up. And I had a period of time, they talk about children in third world orphanages that stop crying because they've learned no one's going to come to help them. And I felt like I was kind of in at a fork in the road at some point. Like I was almost tempted to stop praying because it had taken so long for God to work. But I really had to pray. I had to pray through passages on waiting. They that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know, Joseph's life, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Although it took, you know, quite a while for that to play out. And so really what you have to learn is patience, trust, perseverance, and to really believe that God's understanding of time is better than mine. And and that for me really was the place of trust. I had to wrestle with him and trust that his lack of moving in my time frame didn't mean he wasn't moving or didn't mean he wasn't good. And then you asked also a question about, did I ever feel convicted that maybe I was the problem? And I did. A lot of times I wondered, but a friend told me something that that may be kind of silly about the Holy Spirit, but she said, the Holy Spirit is like a referee in a football game, that if he ever throws the flag, he's going to stop and tell you what it's for. And so a general feeling of, well, I don't know. I mean, did I... I, I, I really believe the Holy Spirit, when he convicts us of sin, he convicts us of sin. I don't think his MO is ambivalent, you know, like, but I would read scripture. I was humbled by scripture. If scripture convicted me, I tried very hard not to sin against folks the way I felt like they had sinned against others. But I had to wait. I had to wait on God's time. Now, God did. I can look back and see so clearly how the Lord worked. And he was being gracious to a lot of people, not just gracious to me, but he was gracious to a lot of people caught in sin. And he took his time. And looking back, I can see it now very clearly. Well, that was fine that he took that, that time. And he, he is an eternal being. My time frame, my, you know, it took a year longer than what I thought was appropriate. But God's time frame is so different than mine. So in retrospect, of course, I don't have any questions about it. But on, on the other end, I had to wrestle and just stay 
praying about it in relationship with God as I waited on these things to work out. So I'm going to ask you this question, and I think it has to do with some of the community and some of the things you're talking about. But when you left Mars Hill and lots of your friends had stayed, did you pursue them to tell them your story, the reasons for leaving and attempt to get them to leave too? And how did you let go of the need to protect your reputation or do you? Yeah, I did not pursue people. And maybe that was some of my personality type. And I don't want to say this in an offensive way, but after a little while, because I did early on, you know, we, we talked to Mark Driscoll privately. We you know, tried to talk to a lot of elders privately as we first left with their concerns. But at some point, the don't cast your pearls before swine. And I want to be careful not to, I think, I think the point of that is you, it, you can't make people receive what you feel like you need to say. And so if someone doesn't seem receptive, there's no, there's no value in harping on them in, a, in an effort to get them to hear something they cannot yet hear. And, but, and, and a lot of that was kind of resolved in my mind because even though I wasn't going to people, I had a lot of people coming to me because I had been a leader. And I tried to be careful in how I responded to those folks as well. But if they already saw a lot of the problems, I didn't sweep it under the carpet. I tried to be honest, like, yeah, this is really concerning to me too. But no, I didn't pursue people because I, I felt like there were a lot of people who were just not ready. And, and what about your reputation? Did you feel the need to protect your reputation? Yeah, I felt a lot of defensiveness. I remember just a little anecdote. So when Andy and I were on our way out, we sat down, Andy made an appointment with Mark and Andy and I both sat down with Mark and Andy really led in that discussion. He was, you know, at this point, he was leading our family and he led in that discussion. He led our family to see our need to leave Mars Hill. And it was later that he kind of had his breakdown, but I'll never forget that a friend, friend of mine who was a secretary at Acts 29 told me later that when someone asked Mark why we had left the church, Mark told him, well, because Wendy wears the pants in that family. And, ah, you know, in, a, in conservative churches, this, this was like such a horrible thing to me. Like, no, Andy was leading us through that. And I've always been sensitive because I was more vocal than he was. But he was, Andy really was very concerned and brought a lot of those concerns to me before I was ready to hear them. And so I was so embarrassed that Mark would say that. And I was so worried that then nobody was going to ever want to hear from me if they thought that I was the one who, quote unquote, wore the pants in the family. And I really struggled. And First Peter 2, um, when Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I had to really clamp onto that verse because I wanted to go everywhere I could think of and say, well, no, actually, I really believe in submission and I respect and that, you know, this is not my reputation among people who know me. But what I really had to do was just entrust God with my reputation, because really, I think you only make yourself look worse if you're defensive about it and, and trust, you know, it didn't really matter what any other person thought, I, I needed to make sure I was right before God and trust what he said over me 
uh, trust his sanctification in my life, trust the Holy Spirit's conviction in my life. I wasn't perfect, but I really had to entrust myself to the one who judges justly. How did you practically love others when they wronged you and when they've wronged you, especially if they don't think they did and can't understand why you're distant or different? And also when attempts have been made numerous times with mediators to come to a grace-filled understanding of a situation, but no movement and no progress was made. Well, I think that you can work in your own heart privately to think of this opponent in the Second Timothy 2, 24 way. If you can train yourself to think of them with compassion as someone taken captive by Satan and then pray in your heart for God to grant them repentance so that your heart has changed toward them. And then when you interact with them, and I I have interactions with several people in my life right now, sometimes daily. And and my ex-husband is one because of his mental health issues. He will never understand because he really was in a different reality when we were going through our divorce. So he really, I don't think will ever fully understand how he hurt me or what he did to me. And so I have to accept what he can give me. And, you know, a lot of people will feel bad and they'll want to interact with you. And there's a level of reconciliation you'll never have if someone doesn't fully understand their sin against you, name it and repent and ask your forgiveness. But I think you can receive from people what they can give you, knowing that they're fallen, limited human beings and no human being in a relationship is ever going to be perfectly able to give you a perfect community, right? And so with my ex-husband in particular, I've learned to receive what he can. I know he cares for me. He cares for our family. I receive what he can do. And I know there are also certain things that I would love to hear from him that he'll never be able to say. And then I can just accept from the Lord what, because, because God says over me what I really need to hear. And because of who I am in Christ, then I can receive other people's maybe inadequate offerings and not be threatened by them. Another question, which maybe kind of goes along with that, but if if someone asks you to forgive them for an offense, does that mean you're never going to bring up that offense again? Well, that's a good question. It probably depends on what the offense is. There are certain situations that you might have to bring it up, not to exhibit retribution or make them feel bad again, but because there needs to be some, you know, like uh, there's certain sexual sins that there needs to be some guards in place to keep that from happening again. But I think that you can forgive someone and still have to talk about it at times. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness really ultimately means that they face it head on and own it. And I think someone who has truly repented, truly owned their sin is not and and accepted what Christ says over them is able to talk about it and understand how, I mean, sometimes the conversations of how they harmed you with that sin take a while. And someone who has truly humbled themselves and repented, I think can hear that. I think that's the key in that kind of a relationship is, is the person able to, if they've completely repented, then they're going to be able to say to you, however many times we need to talk about this, we'll talk about it. 
but then the heart of the person who is doing the forgiving that this might be a challenge where they just have to keep uh, going through that forgiveness process again and again, as they remember things that keep coming to mind. One of the questions we came up is in taking up an offense. This person says that she's a pastor, she's a pastor's wife. And as pastor's wives, you hear things and you know about conflicts and problems. And then the pastor often is able to work through those uh, issues with the person but the pastor's wife is not part of the reconciliation process. So they've all forgiven each other and they're fine, but she's still carrying around this hurt for uh, taking up an offense, maybe for her husband or for someone else. And another situation that she brought up is her daughter's ex-husband. Her daughter has been able to forgive her ex-husband, but this woman says, I just can't. I, I still have so many trust issues there. How do you, how do you deal with that kind of unresolved conflict when it's, you're taking up the offense, you aren't the one, you are hurt, but you know, it's somebody else's offense that you're taking, you're hurting for them too. Yeah. And I think that sometimes if it's someone harmed their child or harmed a loved one, it is way harder, way harder. But I do think that part of our love for our, our child or our loved one is hoping for reconciliation for them And then we don't want to be barriers to reconciliation. So if two people have reconciled, you know, and I hear this from people sometimes, well, I don't think they should have reconciled, or I don't think that, you know, did they, did this person say it clearly enough? I think that we really want to guard ourselves from creating extra barriers, extra stumbling blocks, you know, and you want to be wise, you but I think we have to be careful not to create, we need to love reconciliation, love repentance, love reconciliation, hope for reconciliation, and try to guard ourselves so that our first reaction is joy, even if we didn't see it all, joy that two people that were really had harmed each other are able to come back with forgiveness and hope for their future. Is it possible to move on too quickly after this kind of hurt that you experienced? For instance, you took, you took your time uh, getting into another church. You sat on the back pew for six months with your boys. When your church life is affected, how can you tell when it's time for you to start stepping back into the covenant family, start trusting again, start serving again? Yeah, I that's a, that's a good question. I will say I think it's important to go to church. And so if you have to go anonymously or or sit on the back row or go to a church that you don't plan to ever go back to, my strong encouragement is not to get out of the habit of going to church. So that was really powerful for me to stay in the habit of going to church. But I also had new and improved antenna out. So I was better. One thing I did was, and you can do this a lot more now, I listened to about two months of sermons before we ever darkened the door. So as we were on our way out of Mars Hill, I was already listening to sermons from this other church that we ended up in. And we specifically ended up in it because they had a plurality of elders that they had the Presbyterian elder accountability. And that was by far the most important thing I wanted is accountability. And so I listened to sermons for a while. 
We did sit on the back row, but we're still going faithfully to church. Now, I remember the pastor came over and talked to us a few weeks into going. And I remember him telling us, you know, y'all sit on the back row as long as you need. And at some point, I'm going to ask you to, you know, to get more involved. And if you say no, I'm, I'm probably, I might get mad at you, but I'll, I'll repent. <laughs> That's what he said. And, you know, it was just kind of a sweet thing to let us know that he wanted us there. But he also really understood we had poured ourselves out at another church. And I always felt bad about it. I had really poured myself out at a church. But the one I was taking from sitting on the back row was a totally different one. It wasn't one that I had poured out in. I hadn't given them my money. I hadn't given them my time. I just, all they knew about me was I just sat on the back row. But a good church will, I think, understand and give you the time. And they gave us the time that we need until I just, I felt better about it. So this person's asking, what do you think about the advice that we need to forgive God for sending pain into our lives? Yeah, I think that's really terrible advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, even I think yeah. sometimes people, people view things that they're as, as punishment from God too. So it's, it's definitely when you're thinking that everything comes through God's hands, then, then you're, you are thinking that God is allowing these things for some reason. Yeah. And I think what we really need to pray for is trust. I mean, that's, that's, that's the key. God has allowed something and I cannot at this point in my life figure out any good. I had I had about three rounds of it. I can I can see no good from this church going in this direction and and seeming to destroy the faith of so many. I can see no good from this divorce. I can see no potential good. I like all of, uh, from my breast cancer. All of this just looks like wrong with the world. And then, you know, 10 years later, you can look back and you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew God could work that kind of miracle of guiding the fallout to the ground from such a terrible circumstance and instead using it to bring fruit. And so really the key is trusting God for the long haul, believing that he is good and that you will see his goodness. And that when you stand face to face with him in heaven, you're not going to be stamping your foot like, why did you allow that? In my life? And why did you tell that? No, when we see him in heaven, it's all going to be like, oh, oh, okay. You know, it's going to be beautiful. So the key is not forgiving him. The key is trusting him. Right. So what if you're the person that's caused the pain and you're having a hard time forgiving yourself for the hurt that you've caused? Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. And really, we have to believe the gospel is for us too. And so what has Jesus said about you? Well, he said that he has lavished his grace on you and that before before the foundation of the world, that God planned to save you from your sin. And so you can face that sin head on. And, you know, you, you would not believe what it will minister to the one you've hurt when you say, I know I hurt you. What I did was wrong. And I am so sorry. It ministers a lot of grace to the one you had harmed, not to be defensive. And in Christ, you don't have to be defensive. It doesn't define you. So you can own it and face it head on and repair with the one that you've harmed. 
but the gospel equips you to face it head on without being condemned by it. Wendy, what if you are facing it head on, you are asking for forgiveness, the person maybe reluctantly forgives, but you know that you have caused so much harm that you will never recapture what was there. It's totally gone. There is no possibility of reconciliation. How do you not keep beating yourself up every single day thinking about the harm that you have caused? You know, one thing that's been helpful for me to pray for, the Bible talks about how they that sow in tears will reap in joy and that all of us have a precious bag of seed. And so if you've sent, you have a broken relationship and it doesn't look like it will ever be repaired, there is still some kind of seed that God has left at your feet to be sown in your life. And maybe it's not going to be in the the place it used to be. Maybe, Maybe you will no longer be able to minister in a certain church or a certain friend group or a certain relationship. But there are other places that maybe God has for you at this time to sow seed and see fruit in your life. And I would pray that God would show me where I can be useful. If someone is not going to allow me back in their life, what, what places can I go? And there are a lot of down and out people who long for someone willing to serve in their lives. And it may be the Salvation Army. It may be you know, goodwill and maybe some outreach ministry at your local church. But there is a place for you to sow seed, to bear fruit. And that's what you've got to find because you, you have to keep your hand to the plow, even if you can't work in the places or minister in the places you used to. Yeah, I, I want to, if you haven't read Wendy's book, you must get it because she fills in all the blanks with story of Joseph. What she is saying, she like what she just talked about right now, she, it's so beautiful in one of her chapters where she talks about how uh, going forth with tears in mourning, but sowing seeds, you're still sowing seeds. And there's just so much that I want Wendy to say to you, but there is not going to be enough time <laughs> for it. And I, I'm pleading with you, get her book and read it because it is so rich. If you're struggling with forgiveness and reconciliation and all these things, get the book because she unpacks this, everything she's saying, she unpacks even more in the book. And the next question, you unpack it in the book, but I'm going to throw it out to you and you can give us a, like a, a, a quick answer to it. This person says, I resonate with your past history of betrayal and pain of experienced similar hurts, but like you, I am in a better place and I give God all glory for revealing his purposes and peace. But I don't like saying I'm in a better place sometimes because I don't want anyone to think the way I was treated was righteous or good for me. In other words, I don't want to let the perpetrators of my wounds off the hook so they can feel good about what they did. How do you handle this conflict of wanting to give God glory, but not those who hurt you? Yeah, it reminds me of that saying that Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. And it's kind of a nice parallel. He's not letting his brothers off the hook in terms of, he's not saying, well, what you did was okay. He's saying God was supernatural over this bad thing you did. Now, of course, at this point, his brothers are repentant. They've acknowledged it to him and are coming to him again in, in sadness. And 
he's he's acknowledging it head on. You meant it for evil, but God is sovereign over this and meant it for good. I do think we don't have to convict others of sin. And so if you feel the freedom, it is not your job to convict others of sin. God is the one, like I, I talked before, First Peter 2, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And it, we, we are in a culture right now that's crying out for justice, which I'm, I, I'm you know, a minor social justice warrior myself, but really God is going to have justice. There's no question. You know, he's not dependent on us getting others to acknowledge it. And so you really can trust. You don't have to make someone understand. You don't have to always offer caveats. You can say, you know, God has been good to me despite, and maybe that would be a language you would be feeling, despite what was done which was wrong. God has been really kind to me and gracious to me, but you don't have to convict someone else of their sin. God will do that. That is the Holy Spirit's job. And you can have a freedom that it's, that they're, they're not going to get away with their sin just because you are clear that God has been good to you. You really unpack this in your book beautifully. Also, how Joseph, he had this unresolved grief and pain and betrayal in his life, and yet God continued to open up doors to him to serve. He, he was incredibly blessed by the Lord. The things that God did through his life were amazing. He had to keep taking steps in spite of the grief that he, he carried and the picture right. of him when he is with his brothers and he has to go off by himself and he's wailing. Right. Because that hurt all those years that he was serving the Lord faithfully and God was building this incredible influence, eternal influence, that pain was still there in him. He had that. That's that ambiguous loss that you talk about. And we're going to, we're starting to run out of time, but Barbie and I wanted to talk about that. The question is. How does understanding ambiguous loss help us better understand our own grief over broken relationships, especially when we are powerless to affect any change in our circumstances? I think it helps just to have a name for something you're feeling that maybe you didn't even realize what it was. And I know for years, I, I felt that the ship sailing off with all my friends and not really having a name for that loss. And so when I finally did, I I started learning about ambiguous loss during my divorce. That was when I first heard the term and started studying it some. And to have that name for what I was feeling, I I don't know, it's just something about someone else saying, well, that this is a type of loss, a type of loss maybe you don't realize. It was so helpful to me then to be able to face it. Another thing I could face head on and lament it. I do think we have to lament loss. We were not created for loss. We were created in God's image for perfection. And lament is a is something in scripture that's recorded for us in eternal scripture so that we would have guides through lament. And um, it, I think it's really unwise when we go quickly through a problem and try to get to the other side without really acknowledging the pain that comes with it and lamenting it in words that God gives us in scripture. 
before we, we wrap up and Barbie's going to pick out some uh, names for our gifts for everybody, we would like to give you an opportunity, Wendy, to wrap up maybe with a few words of encouragement. I have no doubt that there is someone who is watching right now and who will watch, who might be holding on by their fingernails because they are so broken by betrayal and hurt, and they just don't even know where to turn. Could you just take a minute to encourage that person? Yeah, I, I'd love to do that. And the, the probably the most encouraging thing I took away from the story of Joseph was the name he gave his second son, Ephraim, which was from the Hebrew for fruitful. And he said, I will name him Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And all of us, when we are suffering, want to be freed from affliction. You know, I don't want to be afflicted. I don't want to be divorced. I don't want to have breast cancer. I don't want to be from a broken church background. I want to be, I don't want to be in this land of affliction. But the hope is that you can also be fruitful there. You know, we want it to end. We don't want to be in the, I don't want to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. I want to be fruitful in this other land that I had planned for myself. And God says, uh, no, through the life of Joseph, he says, I want to give you a vision for being fruitful where you are, that you don't just have to get out of your circumstances. You can actually be fruitful in those circumstances. And when we finally get to the point that we're not clawing against the wall anymore, and you realize we've got some circumstances we're not going to get out of, but our hope is that God can still work good. God can still make you fruitful. Love and joy and peace and the fruit of the spirit is still available in your life and fruitful ministry is still available in these circumstances. It's going to look differently than it looked like and how, maybe how you imagined for yourself, but you can still be fruitful. So mm-hmm. sow that seed with tears, but you will reap with joy. That's our promise. Thank you, Wendy, so much for sharing with us today, for answering these questions and for offering the help and hope of the gospel through your own story, but most importantly, through the power of his word. I'm Sharon Betters, and you have been joining us for the Help and Hope podcast, our special edition called Beyond the Book. Ask the author, Barbie Latalian, has been my co-host, and we are so grateful that you have been part of our conversation as well. We hope that you will share it with others. We hope you will leave a rating, that you will leave a comment. Let us know how God is using conversations like this to help turn your heart toward Jesus. You can go to markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you can find more resources like this one. You can also, if you feel a need for counseling, you need somebody to help you navigate this forgiveness maze, I want to encourage you to check out Anchored Hope Online Counseling. Again, you can go to markinc.org and you will find the link to Anchored Hope We have trained biblical counselors who are ready and willing to walk with you through the own broken places in your life and to find that power of forgiveness that the scriptures promise us as we are obedient in following what God has called us to do. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to being with you again for the Help and Hope podcast where we share conversations designed to help turn your heart toward Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org 
markinc.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.